We are continuing the reign of King Saul now in 1 Samuel chapter 13. The previous chapter, chapter 12, Samuel had given his farewell address, not goodbye forever, but no longer serving as judge because you have a new ruler over your land, the king that God has chosen, Saul. And that encouragement that Samuel had given there that if you, the people, and your king follow in the way of the Lord, then you will be blessed. But if you don't, or your king doesn't, then God will bring his punishment upon the land, upon this people. It's with that warning that then chapter 13 begins. Verse 1, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. We got to stop right after that verse right now. Um, what you have there really is the common kind of designation of with a ruler. You list how old they are when they become king and then how many years they reign. It's a pattern that you see in Scripture that comes up it comes up when David becomes king. comes up with many kings after. It's a familiar common pattern. But we've got a little bit of a problem here. And maybe you notice it depending upon what translation you're using. Um, I'm guessing many of your translations say that, what we just read. But others don't. They say something different. They have different numbers. They have different numbers. Um, and the numbers to take note of that are different is 30 and 40. In the Hebrew, those numbers aren't there. That's kind of a challenge, isn't it, then? Where do these numbers come from if it's not there? Okay, what do you mean by the split? Well, for Saul, um, his rule would have been the whole nation. It doesn't split till after Solomon. And so it was a complete rule over the people. Looking at the Hebrew itself, what does it say? It really says Saul was a year when he became king, and he reigned over Israel two years. Even being more precise, Saul was a son of a year when he became king and he reigned over Israel two years. That doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? <laughs> no. Two score and two. Two score and two. <laughs> yeah, but we don't have those kind of things like scores there. That's a <laughs> so how do we get 30 and 42? Um, and once again, you read some other translations, you're going to find in one translation, you're going to find he was 50 years old. You're going to find another translation, and he reigned over Israel 22 years. Is it just pull a number of a hat, whatever you like? Well, of course not. Not with God's word. Maybe something to take note too, when in the Hebrew, writing the numbers, think how we write numbers. Okay, we can actually use the numbers, the numerals themselves. We can also use words to write out those numbers. In the Hebrew, how they did it, they often just use one letter of their alphabet to signal a number. And so now you can see how easily all of a sudden that number almost got looked over or missed. What the difficulty we have is that in some of our earliest Hebrew manuscripts, we don't have these numbers. Now, later ones, a translation into Greek, it's called the Septuagint, so it's still pretty early in time. These numbers are there. The 30 is there. The 40 is not. We can talk about that one in a bit. So we do see the numbers show up later, and so it seems okay. It somehow got missed. The pattern is really driving and saying, okay, likely this is supposed to be telling us how old he was when he began rule and how many years because we see that time and time again. One explanation was, well, maybe it's not saying that. 
Maybe it's simply saying how long he had ruled before this next incident took place. And so maybe you'll see when it gets to the end, two years, okay, maybe he'd only ruled two years. I get it's possible. We do get from Acts chapter 13, we do get a rough number of how long Saul ruled. And I say rough number because many times when God gives us numbers, they're not exactly, well, it's this precise amount. He gives round numbers. Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is preaching on his first missionary journey. And he talks and mentions Saul ruling 40 years. A round number. A round number. And so there is why it's okay, thought maybe perhaps number 40 is missing here. Can we say exactly for certain how old was Saul when he became king? No, we can't say exact number. Can we say exactly how many years Saul ruled before this takes place that we're going to read in the rest of the No, not exactly. Can we say exactly how many years he ruled over Israel? No, not exactly. But then I guess the question I ask, does that change what Scripture says? No. And you find that, okay, in this situation, this verse here, where we don't have the exact numbers, we can tell, okay, something isn't quite right with the manuscripts. Not something's wrong with God's Word, something that isn't quite right with the manuscripts, with some of them. And so it's not, okay, complete certainty, how old was he? Or it's not complete certainty, the exact timing of this. That doesn't change the truth that God is proclaiming to us. Not in the least bit. What we can say here is this, that Saul now is ruling. This is his reign. This is a mark of, okay, what's going to happen? We're, talk, we're talking about Saul as king now. He is the king. He is the one ruling. Um, other kind of things to try to suggest Saul's age as well would be the fact that he has a son who we're going to see in this chapter who is not just a young boy but a son who is now a commander in the army. That says something, too, as far as how old roughly Saul must be, at least. Um, and that's where if you put in, say, okay, Saul was 30 years old, and he and it was and it reigned for Israel for two years when this took place, now he's 32. 32, and he has a son who's a commander? Maybe not. Maybe not. Doesn't quite add up. Questions you have about this first verse and timing. From other places in Scripture, that's what we always go to. When we have difficulties in one passage in Scripture, we always look at Scripture as a whole. Other places would tell us from Acts, Saul reigned roughly 40 years. Roughly 40 years. Other places in Scripture, as they set up this kind of pattern, would say, all right, this is telling us that this is covering under Saul's reign, likely, try, likely giving his age when he began, likely pointing to how long he ruled. And then as we look at some of those other manuscripts, the ones that translate into Greek, okay, 30 was there a long time ago. The number 30 was there in a lot of ways. Not the earliest ones we have, but still very old, reliable manuscripts. Let's move on then. Verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. All of a sudden we have a new character on the scene, don't we? Jonathan. First time he's mentioned here. And we know who he is. It's not mentioned though who he is. <laughs> Notice that? We'll get that later in the chapter where he's then qualified as being Saul's son. But here he is, and the first thing we learn about Jonathan is that he is entrusted with a thousand men at Gibeah. That's our first picture of Jonathan, that he is gifted in this way with this responsibility, with this military talents to now be given a thousand men in the army of the king. Um, he's at Gibeah. You remember Gibeah is the town that Saul already rescued um, remember that there is relations going back with Benjamin, Gibeah and Benjamin. 
Saul is a Benjaminite. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Kept 3,000. So that's the standing army for Saul. 3,000 men. Impressions on his army. 3,000 men. Is it big enough? Is it the right size? Too big? What do you think? Pretty much a normal way needed. Okay. So this is obviously this is Saul's calculation saying, all right, three thousand men. Two thousand here, one thousand here. Don't need any more. Send them back home. Now remember, as Saul is king, he already won a battle against the Ammonites. We saw that in chapter 11. Already won a battle there. A battle which he gave credit that this was deliverance from the Lord. And so maybe it's an act of faith here, saying, all right, 3,000. Not testing the Lord that we're going to go with two, but we don't need to keep building up our army. That's not what the point is. We need to appropriately have an army. 3,000. We'll have to keep asking that question as we go through. The army Saul has. Too big, right size, not big enough. Verse 3. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba. And the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Who attacks the Philistines? Looking at those words, who attacks the Philistines? Jonathan attacks the Philistines. What was the news? Who attacked the Philistines? Saul attacked the Philistines. Huh. I don't know if we have to read into it that anything as far as stealing credit or things like that. I mean, ultimately, Jonathan is a commander in Saul's army. And so by extension, I think you could say, news, okay. The king has, has attacked. Well, not necessarily the king himself. But you do take note. Who is the one who is showing the courage here to take on the enemies of Israel in hand-to-hand, face-to-face combat? It's Jonathan. It's Jonathan that is doing this. That as the Lord has promised that he would use Saul to deliver his people from the Philistines, it's Jonathan who makes the first move. Now, okay, after Jonathan does it, the obvious expectations there's going to be retaliation on the Philistines. And so Saul rightly does this and say, all right, time to blow the trumpet. Let's call the nation here because, all right, we have now entered into war. It's begun. The sleeping dragon of the Philistines has been poked and prodded and awoke. Now let's all gather here, get ready. Um, now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. Other translate Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. Um, it's that sore spot that is now just sticking out that when other nations would hear, oh, the Philistines, oh, you mean the ones that have Israelites rebelling against them all the time and things like that? It's, it's tarnishing the Philistines' name. It is, think of that stench that is this unappealing, this always there, you can't get rid of it kind of thing. That's what Israel has become for the Philistines through Jonathan attacking. And so now Saul is gathering up the people, summoned to join Saul at Gilgal to really now not just poke and prod, but to go into battle. Verse 5, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. 
When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Let's come back to that question. Saul's army, too big, right size, not big enough. What do you think? Well, if you're going to go count by numbers compared to the Philistines, definitely not big enough. Definitely not big enough that they have 3,000 chariots. Well, how many people did Saul have? 3,000 men. And Philistines have 6,000 charioteers. Oh, double the number of people you're putting in these chariots. And then soldiers as numerous as the sand. That when they see the Philistine army look out, you don't see the ground anymore. Because it's just people. It's just people. And what's the reaction from the Israelites? They're terrified. They go and hide. The army is going into caves, thickets, every man for himself. Seek cover. We're not going to go out and fight these Philistines. We're just going to try to survive. This is a test for Saul, isn't it? God had given him, uh, delivered him, given him victory over the Ammonites, over Naash. Here is now a big test for Saul as king. That he is now face to face with the Philistines. What would he do? How would he lead? Questions or comments? Please. I'm glad you brought that up. That sounds awful similar to what happened to Gideon. Um, Gideon, roughly 185,000 Midianites that I think they even described the whole valley was full of them and their camels and you couldn't even see the land. And now just to do some comparisons here because I think this is going to be valuable as we look today to make some comparisons with Saul and others. How many men did Gideon have? By the end of it. Again, remember, he starts out and God whittles him down, first sending away the ones who were scared. That's the difference here. That the ones who are scared in Saul's army, what are they doing? They're hiding in caves. <laughs> the ones who were scared in Gideon's army, Gideon's, God said, let them go home. Let them go home. And then, as far as those who lapped up the water, do you remember how many? I know I'm asking a question from memory again here. Do you, do you remember how many? 300, 300 Yes. 300. How many does Saul have? Oh. How many does Saul have? 3,000. Oh. Does Saul have enough? Too big? Appropriate number? Not enough? And, and that's the key right there you said. If they fear the Lord, that's plenty. Do they need to match up one-to-one ratio with the enemy. No. God's people have never done that in the past. God's always given to li- deliver them, given the victory, showing that it's his power, his strength. And so as we look here at this Philistine army, yeah, there's a lot of people here. But that really shouldn't mean anything, should it? You have some hiding kings, you have some that are crossing the Jordan, simply fleeing abandoning, here's a test for Saul. Remember he had rallied the people before attacking the Ammonites in chapter 11. Remember he sent the pieces of that bull throughout and they rallied them all together. He needs to rally the nation. That's what a good leader does. Well, how is he going to do it? How is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Other questions or comments before we go on? Yeah, no, that's another example too, yeah, as far as one. And you do see a one-to-one where as far as David and Goliath, but you say that's really not necessarily a fair one-to-one, is it? Once again, you see the difference there. God gives victory showing his strength by using weakness. By using weakness. 
Other questions or comments? Please. Yeah, and as I was mentioning there, what we saw in the end of Judges, what Saul had done in chapter 11 of cutting the bull, we almost think, okay, you know, he's re- seeing what was done in the past in a different kind of way with cutting up the concubine to rally the nation. He does it in a much more God-pleasing way of using an animal, and he saw it was effective. And maybe the question there comes up again. It seems like Saul, you know, learned lessons from the past from those things. See how God had blessed the people in the past. Shouldn't he remember Gideon? Shouldn't he be looking back to the past? And he doesn't even have to look back that far. He doesn't have to look back to the time. He can simply look back to the times already, whether it was with Nahash and the the Ammonites, or whether it was Samuel before Saul was chosen king, before Israel asked, and God just simply gave the victory by causing chaos. Time and time again, God shows how he delivers. And in times of crisis, how important it is to go back to those times when God has delivered, to remember those times. Because that is where the strength is now okay to stand, to follow God's ways, to do his will, to put your trust that he will keep delivering. He's done it before no matter how much the odds may seem against you. God keeps his promises. He takes care of his people. Continuing on then, Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering." and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he had finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. The Philistines came with an army, and they camped at Michmash. Try to track where people have been in all this. Looking back where this chapter started, Saul had taken his 2,000. They first were at Michmash. That's where they had started out. Now, once the attack, they go to Gilgal. They're leaving this area. They're going to Gilgal to meet together. And it's not now that he goes back to Michmash, but he remains at Gilgal. This is away from where the threat is. What's he going to do? Well, everyone's quaking with fear, he waited the seven days, the time set by Samuel. Samuel had set seven days before. Remember when Samuel anointed Saul as king. 1 Samuel chapter 10. He'd given those signs to reassure Saul. This is from the Lord. The signs of people coming to you and telling you about your donkey. The people coming that are going up to worship and giving you food. The joining in the procession of the prophets, the Spirit of the Lord coming upon you. And at the end of that, what did Samuel say to him? Chapter 10, verse 8, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. This is what Samuel had said to Saul back when he first anointed him. When he says it to Saul there, is it talking about this event? Probably not. But it seems like this is the pattern of, okay, of how Samuel would interact with Saul and then come and offer sacrifices. That, okay, wait there for me. Wait there for me. Emphasizing there, we do this the Lord's way. And it starts by listening to when he says, wait. Not taking things into your own hands. You wait on the Lord. You wait on the Lord. But what does Saul do here? He doesn't wait. Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. And so the scene as Saul is watching this is, Samuel, why aren't you here yet? 
It's seven days. You said you'd be here. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. And the men are getting restless, and it's going to become chaos. We're going to lose whatever troops we have. And Saul comes to the conclusion, I shouldn't keep waiting. That more important than listening to what Samuel said, Samuel proclaiming the word of God to Saul, what God's will is more important than letting Samuel, the priest, come and do the sacrifice as God had commanded. More important is that I do something right now to try to stop the men from scattering. Do you see the problem with that? Do you see the problem with that? That all of a sudden now it is looking at a situation and how there is a problem in front and saying that this is more pressing and what I am going to do is going to address the problem better than anything else that's been told to me. What's been told to me doesn't seem like it's working. And so if I don't ignore that, there'll be bigger problems. Can you think of times in your life where it seems like there's a crisis in front of you and it almost puts you at odds of, well, I know this is what God's will is, but if I just do this, this will alleviate the situation. Maybe it's interacting with family members and you want to encourage them to take some sort of action. You want to do something, but because they're not, maybe it is, you know, the encouraging to be in God's word, to be connected to him for, 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 their grand, for your grandchildren, things like that. And there can be the temptation of, well, if I, I could just do this and it'll solve the problem. But then ignoring some of the other things that God has told us. Ignoring some of the things of, well, he gives children to parents and they're the one's primary care, not just physically, but spiritually. It, it can all of a sudden just be this putting at odds of saying, I've got God's will and word on one side and I've got a problem on the other and thinking that God's will and word won't actually help the problem. I have, there has to be a different answer. And so I can ignore it because the problem is most important. That's what, go ahead. He did wait the seven days. He did, and that makes it maybe a little tricky there too because are we on the seventh day? Are we on the eighth day? We don't really know. He did wait, but maybe the bigger thing is this. He did wait. Okay, so you say, and then maybe that's something we find ourselves too. It's easy for us, you know, we start saying, okay, this is God's will, and all of a sudden it seems like, all right, we're doing it, we're doing it, we're doing it, but nothing's changing. That says it was set by Samuel. Yeah, set by Samuel. But now remember, Samuel is, I mean, the one, it is God's, is God's prophet. And so it is giving at God's command there. This is not just necessarily Samuel saying, okay, this is my personal opinion here, I've got something to do, so give me a week and then I'll come. I mean, he is teaching Saul here. And specifically because what's, gonna, what's Samuel going to do? He's going to offer sacrifices. What tribe did Saul come from? Benjamin. What tribe do priests come from? Levi. Saul has absolutely no right, and in no way is he allowed to offer sacrifices by God's command. And so that's where all of a sudden you see what is he doing? Samuel isn't coming. He isn't coming quick enough. The problem is not going to be solved because Samuel's not here yet, so I have to fix it. I have to fix it. It's, you see, really an impatience on Saul. Impatience to say, well, I know Samuel's not here, and Samuel needs to offer the sacrifices to simply say, well, I can't offer the sacrifices. 
That's Samuel's job. Instead, Saul decides, I'm going to take on this role as priest now. Take on a role that does not belong to him and take things into his own hands. And so he offers the sacrifices and just as he finishes, who shows up? Samuel. Samuel shows up. And what does Saul do as Samuel shows up? Maybe this is probably the most troubling part of it. What does Saul do? Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Is that what you'd expect someone to do who just all of a sudden did someone else's job that they weren't supposed to do? Maybe not. You maybe would have thought, oh, Saul would quickly kind of brush things aside and put things, oh, hi, Samuel. <laughs> oh, you're here now. But just very different. Saul just goes out to grieve. There is seemingly no shame. There's no fear. There's no hiding what he did. That's troubling, isn't it? That's troubling. It's certainly, it's not, I'm so sorry, Samuel. It doesn't start like that either. Verse 11, what have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Evaluate Saul's response. <sighs> Certainly there is no, I'm sorry I was wrong. Please forgive me, Lord have mercy. That's not anywhere in this, is it? In fact, he even turns and says, well, I needed the Lord's favor. I needed to do something that was pleasing to the Lord to ask for his blessing. In what twisted way do you think that you're going to receive the Lord's favor asking for his blessing by disobeying his commands? I mean, that's a question to really look at with Saul here. And that's a question I think we have to then ask ourselves in our lives. That, you know, whether it is we see challengers or seeking blessings if we find ourselves disobeying God's word to try to make things better, how do we think that that's going to get us God's blessing? <laughs> really in no way. If we think that, we're, that by, you know, just kind of ignoring something God says or maybe trying to excuse it and justify in our minds, because that's what Saul's doing, making a lot of excuses here as to, well, the situation called for it. It was a crisis. The situation needed it. That you, The Philistines were coming. The men were scattering. Um, I needed the Lord's favor, so I just, you know, I'm sure he would be okay with me taking this off from the sacrifice. It was, it was meant well-intended, but it didn't listen to God. Speak, O Savior. I'm listening. Saul's did not take those words to heart. Samuel, no doubt, remembers those words well. It's what Samuel's been trying to impress upon. So listen, listen, you wait. You wait. Because you think about Samuel, he's seen what's happened before when a leader of Israel doesn't listen to the Lord. Hasn't he? He saw it at a very young age. He saw it with Eli. Now, it was a little different situation than here. And here's maybe another comparison we get. A little different situation. Eli did not listen by a failure to discipline his children, to by a failure to remove them from their positions, by a failure to simply let them continue on in their sin and bring disgrace to the ministry. Eli didn't listen. Now remember, they said, those were Eli's words. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. 
Not that he didn't listen in other ways. Eli did. But what happened? God removed Eli. Removed his house, his family, from service. Because he didn't listen. And now Samuel, after witnessing that, a strong childhood memory for him. Now he confronts Saul. What have you done? And Saul's words, it's almost as if it is the voice of Adam and Eve hundreds of years later coming out again. Well, the people were scattering and the Philistines were coming down. Um, it was that, it was the woman you gave me. And it was, oh, that the serpent and... How many excuses? The excuses of, well, the men were scattering. Saul, whose job is it to stop the men from scattering? It's yours. Not by doing things outside your role, but actually fulfilling your role and being king. The Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Yes, they were, Saul. Yes, they were. And it's your job as king to protect the people. Doing all these things as king by turning to the Lord with his favor in the proper way. By obeying him, walking his commands, putting your trust in him. It is not your job to offer the burnt offering. In what way you feel compelled. You feel compelled. And that's maybe the question that we then keep asking ourselves, when we feel compelled to do things in our lives, to make sure that is, that is in line with God's word. Make sure it's not just a feeling inside of us, a feeling of fear of what's going to happen, but really compelled from what truly does compel us, Christ's love. Christ's love compels us to obey his commands, to show love to others. That's what compels us. Not a situation that seems out of control. That now we're compelled to do anything at all costs. Questions or comments here? What's going to happen now? Verse 13. You have done a foolish thing. Samuel said, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin and saw counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. What's the consequence for Saul? Your kingdom will not endure. Basically, you're dethroned. Yeah, you say dethroned. And maybe we recognize Saul is not removed from position at this moment. God has not taken Saul and said, you are no longer king. But what has he said your family will not keep ruling. Your reign will come to an end and really it's going to be then that's the it. The dynasty of Saul ends at Saul. Really probably won't call it a dynasty. Similar maybe consequence we noticed with Eli. Wasn't it? Did God remove Eli at that moment? No. In fact, multiple times God warned Eli and told him this is going to be the consequence but his family would not continue in service. And so, in a similar way for not obeying the command, is this too harsh? One command, one time, just once. Just one time. And he was just a little bit too early. If he had waited five more minutes, is it too harsh? that just one little command, oh, take the throne away from your family. 
Does the punishment fit the crime? After all, we can look at other people throughout biblical history and see that there are times they disobeyed too and God didn't immediately didn't take away all those things from them either. We look at the next king, David. He was no saint in the purest sense of his own deeds. Okay, he is showing an example here. He is sending a message. What had Samuel said, speaking the word of God from God to the people? What had Samuel said just the chapter before that God records for us? Now, once again, we recognize the timing. There may be a big gap of time here. But notice how God puts it together to convey it to us. Because of all the things that God could have given us about Saul's reign, this is what he gives us here. And we're going to see really about two chapters regarding Saul's military accomplishments. That's really it. For a man who ruled for about 40 years, that's quite little. But this is what God includes. What had God spoken to his people through Samuel that we read just before? He said, if you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. God had given the warning to Saul and said, you serve, you fear the Lord, you obey his commands. Good. But if you don't, expect the same kind of consequences. God's hand heavy upon just as you look in the past. Is it too harsh that Saul would, after just disobeying one command, lose the throne for his family? And thank you for saying that. God looks in the heart because we even do see that being mentioned here in these verses too. He says, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Because that shows where is Saul's heart. The Saul who, when he defeated the Ammonites, said, no one's going to die because this day the Lord has rescued us. The Saul who was humble, hiding in the baggage, the Saul whom the Spirit of the Lord had come on and changed his heart, what do we see now? His heart has changed in a different way. His heart has changed in a different way. He is no longer putting his trust in the Lord. He is putting his trust in himself. And so God puts this consequence down. It's going to be removed from your family because you're not walking in the Lord. You're not trusting me. Who is king? The Lord is king. Saul, you're, you are earthly king, but you are not the one who determines your reign. God does. Note then as well, verse 15 we're asking that question, how is Saul's army doing? How is Saul's army doing? Saul was so concerned because the men were scattering and that's why he felt compelled, personal feeling there, not from anything God told him, personal feeling, felt compelled to offer sacrifices in order to try to calm down his army, to rally them. Did it work? He's got 600 men left. When we take actions into our own hands, does it work? No. It doesn't work. The devil tries to come and tempt and say, you can't wait on God. Nothing's happening. It's time to act. That that'll, you'll be able to fix it. You need to do those things. And then to realize when you look back, it didn't make anything any better, did it? In fact, it just made it worse. It just made it worse. Questions or comments here? 
Yeah. He didn't tell him who it was. And in fact, from how, with how Scripture records it, it does not seem that that ruler has been unveiled to anyone yet. Even Samuel doesn't, necessarily, doesn't know who it is. Because it's going to be two chapters later now that God's going to record to us as he sends Samuel to go anoint David. And we're going to get to that account. You're going to see all Samuel, as he's shown people, doesn't know who it is there either. But who has already appointed? God has. God has. Maybe we ask the question now, too, okay, well, why did God even bother with Saul? He knew this was going to happen. To so much that he has already now appointed a new ruler. Why did he even bother? What did God say he would do through Saul? He would deliver his people from the Philistines. And he will still do that. He is still going to accomplish that. It's for the good of all his people that he made Saul king. Even knowing how Saul would turn his back to him, God would still use it to bless his people. The last part of this chapter really then kind of starts showing us what kind of distress Israel is in with these Philistines, what kind of oppression that really now Saul hasn't lived up to the task of delivering them, that Saul really has now kind of crumbled. Verse 16, Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah and Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments, one turned toward Ophrah in the vicinity of Shul, another toward Beth Horon, and third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim, facing the wilderness. And so here they are still. The Philistines have taken over one of their camps, and they're sending out these raiding parties. It's not that they're going to engage in battles with these parties that they send out. They're simply just going and plundering and destroying Verse 19, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goats. Maybe it seems like strange details to add here. <laughs> Just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we've got, um, we've got certain rates for blacksmith shops. Um, what's the point that God is making here? Why include this? Why is he telling us this? The, He's telling us that it's an exorbitant amount. Yeah, it's an exorbitant amount. Um, it's sometimes really hard to try to take biblical currency and put it into today's dollars. Things fluctuate so much. And so it's maybe not even worth to try to stick a dollar amount on it. But simply recognize, they are charging them way up. And so not only do you have the external army oppression of them closing in, of them sending raiding parties to plunder, you have the economic oppression as well in that what they're charging them for, really what they need for their farming impressing them in that way, plus they don't let, allow them to have the weapons. They're eliminating that threat from Israel of, oh, well, they don't have weapons now, at least not these kinds. Um, the Israelites would have had bows and arrows and things like that, but not these kind of weapons, stronger ones for hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so they're really decreasing the danger Israel's causing, it makes it harder for Israel to rise up, at least on their own, that is. At least on their own. It doesn't really look good for Saul now here in this situation. If they were to take a poll, what is the popularity rating of Saul in his real as king? Right at this moment here now. And the people are thinking through well, let's see, the Philistines are all around us and taking over our towns and they destroy our stuff 
and prices are jacked. Um, favorability, maybe not so high. Maybe not so high for Saul. But that was the king you wanted. This was the king you wanted. Verse 22, so on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. So that's really the result. Saul's soldiers don't even have these kind of weapons. Coming back to that question now, we'd asked Saul's army, too big, right size, not big enough. We're down to 600. We're down to 600. And a little detail, they don't have swords or spears. They don't have swords or spears. Do you see what God is doing here? Do you see what God is doing here? Oh, he's using enemy nations. He's using even Saul's sin, but he's going to show who gives victory, who gives deliverance. It comes from the Lord, not from a powerful man sitting on a throne. Questions or comments here? That's what we get into the next chapter. In the last verse of 13, we'll start leading into it. It says, now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Mash. And so we're going to get to see now the Philistines and the Israelites engage in battle and see the Lord deliver. And look as well in chapter 14 of some, you'd say, some sticky situations. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Some sticky situations. That's it for this time. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Lord, turn our hearts to put our trust in you at all times. No matter how difficult and uncertain the situations may be around us, no matter how strong the temptations may be to take actions into our own hands, may we never ignore or turn our backs on the commands you have given to us. But rely on you, knowing that as we walk in your ways, you will bless us, you will deliver us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.